The following program may contain language that is explicit, and by explicit, I mean implicitly naughty words. It's Thursday, August 13th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I tend to get a little obsessed with family members of tertiary political figures. Yes, this is my addiction. A year and a half ago, for instance, Mark Meadows, who is now Donald Trump's chief of staff, then just a very important congressman, got into it with Rashida Tlaib in a congressional hearing, and then Congressman Meadows sought to make a point absolving him of racism. My nieces and nephews are people of color. I became obsessed. Whose kids? His sister or brothers? His wife's sister? What color were they of? Did someone adopt a Guatemalan or did a member of the Meadows clan marry a Latina? I needed to know, and I still have not learned. If you know news of the nephews of color of Mark Meadows, do drop us a line at the gist at slate.com. Now, I also, for instance, learned a lot about Karen Pence's weird towel pendant business. It's best not to go into too many details. During the campaign, I learned all, all about it, and it It never really came in handy afterwards. Basically, if it's not the first family, and sometimes even if it is, like with, um, what's her name? The non-Ivanka daughter. Anyway, even if it is, it's not worth knowing. Still, I am faced with the idea of Kamala Harris, who could become vice president, having a spouse who, for the first time ever, would not be a wifely spouse, but a husbandly spouse in either the president's or vice president's Chambers. What would this man, Doug Emhoff, what would he call himself? Well, coincidentally, my guest today is Tom Weber, who's a journalist for many years, a reporter and host for Minnesota Public Radio. Tom is also married to Peggy Flanagan, who is the lieutenant governor of Minnesota. Who better to ask about nomenclature than Tom? So, Tom, you are essentially the potential Doug Emhoff of Minnesota. You know what I mean by that? I don't. What, I, I'm missing the reference. <laughs> Do you know who Doug Emhoff is? No. He's Kamala Harris's husband. Oh. Right? So if she's Sorry. so I if the that. vice right, so if we have a female vice president, her husband, I guess, gets to call himself. Should he give a damn? The second spouse or the second husband or just nothing. I have you been asked to make that choice? And what's well, a good I, phrase to go? I with? made it for me, and I, I feel like I heard it. I suppose I, I suppose I'm just now realizing I may have taken it from Bill Clinton in 2016 when he was being asked whether you know if Hillary Clinton was going to become president, and he kept using the phrase "second gentleman," uh-huh. uh, and I like that. So that's. Um, <laughs> That's what I've been using. That's actually on my Twitter bio. And it's just, it's it's ridiculous um, because the second gentleman of Minnesota has, there's no room that the second gentleman of Minnesota gets to be in that anyone else doesn't get to be in. Um, yeah. Well, so it, seems, just, it, it conjures a picture of you like standing on a busy street corner in a top hat and spats, <laughs> welcoming people. Why do I have you dressed Minnesota. as Mr. Yeah, why do I have you dressed as Mr. Peanut in this scenario? <laughs> exactly. So I've been so I think I went for second gentleman because it's more ridiculous than second spouse. Uh-huh. So I'm just I'm just going with it. So I like it. <laughs> You're leaning into it. That's I'm that's totally awesome. leaning into it. And if and if the future second gentleman of the United States, uh, you know, assuming a Biden and Harris win, you know, if he wants to call me up, he's more than welcome to. 
but I think he's going to be busy with some other stuff uh, if this <laughs> yeah, all maybe. happens. I don't know who the first and third are. It's just clear you're the second. Well, but it's because the governor, right, has the first lady. Yeah. So if you're the lieutenant right. governor, then you're second, right? So that's right. that's right. what I no, went No, it with. all makes sense. Yeah. But it's like the fifth. It's like the fifth third bank. Like no, it's the fourth eighth. Bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is the fifth third? What does that mean? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Seconds in gentlemanliness, but first in our hearts, Tom Weber will in fact join us. And then I shall spiel, I know how to say it, I say it every day. And then I shall spiel about election odds. Joe Biden is leading in the polls. What are his chances? Apparently at 71.6. The website 538 is out with its forecast and I reflect on how best to understand Nate Silver's particular wizardry. But first, my Minneapolis knowledge is largely relegated to F. Scott Fitzgerald musings and hold steady lyrics. But to understand the sight of a killing by police that radiated out from one city onto the rest of the country, I think we should first do our best to understand the city. And so we will. We will take a stop, however, first with analysis of Ilan Omar's primary win. She got 57% of the vote. It was a strong win. Tom Weber explains Representative Omar and the city she serves up next. The North American city that has been most in the news without maybe you realizing it or thinking about it is, of course, Minneapolis. Oh, yeah, you say the death of George Floyd and and just recently Ilan Omar beat her primary challenger to essentially get reelected, such as the safety of her district in Minneapolis. But before we can understand the events, the structure of government, the structure of the police force. Let's talk about the city, the history of the city. That will greatly inform what we're talking about when we're talking about things like police reform and things like gentrification. Joining me now is Tom Weber. He is the author of Minneapolis, an urban biography. He's a longtime host for the NPR station, or as they call it, MPR, up there. Hello, Tom. Thanks for joining me. Hello, Mike. Good to be here. So let's talk about, first of all, Ilan Omar. I guess we should note that all the members of the squad have beaten back their primary challenges. Two of them, Presley and AOC, didn't really have strong primary challengers. Rashida Tlaib beat hers handily, and so did Ilan Omar. Omar was seen as perhaps the most vulnerable. Now that we know the results, were the reports of her vulnerability far overrated? Well, I mean, if you just look at the numbers, the answer to that question obviously is yes, because she got nearly 60% of the vote. But I think what grabbed people was the money, because not only did her Democratic challenger at one point outraise her during one quarter with the money, but actually, as we look forward to the to the general, which will not be at all a close contest, but her Republican, now her Republican opponent has also at one point outraised her. He's got several million dollars as well. So I really think a lot of the storyline around this is a, you know, a threat and a challenge, like I really do think that it, it really, it was from those fundraising numbers. And I don't want to diminish that either because Ilhan Omar's own campaign boosted its effort. You know, uh, her challenger, uh, Antone Melton-Mukes, made the point, which is an accurate point, why would you buy a million dollars of ads on Twin Cities TV, you know, a week before the election if you thought you were going to win? So I, I think that the Omar campaign rightfully and correctly did the work it had to do as well to, to turn out the vote. 
What about her marital situation, or which is to say uh, her husband, who used to uh, be a, a staffer, or at least a contractor, who got a lot of money from the uh, Omar campaign to create ads, and I guess they denied that there was a romantic relationship, but oop, look at that, they're married. Was that just salacious and brushed off by voters, or do you think there was a legitimate, just as a news story, do you think there's a legitimate story there? The, the news story is in the fact that his firm was hired even after they were married by Omar's campaign to do work. And so there really is no way to think of that scenario in which Ilhan Omar's household personally benefits from the fact that her husband's firm has gotten this money to do this work. It's absolutely a a legitimate claim. Plenty of plenty of people who voted, still voted for Representative Omar, said, I wish this wasn't a part of the story. I wish this wasn't happening. It's an issue. And I will be looking in her next term or in the near future, whenever I will really I think I don't know. We'll see. But I will be looking to see if she addresses that in any way, because that absolutely was a thing. It wasn't the fact that they had a relationship. It wasn't the fact that, you know, they got married. It was the fact that once they were married, he was still making money um, from her campaign. Right. So this being the Democratic primary, there wasn't too much of the text from her opponent trying to criticize her on the familiar Republican or conservative talking points. Some of these are distortions of things that she said, you know, an offhanded remark, which is totally understandable in context where they claim that she wasn't serious enough about 9-11. Then again, she did apologize for conflating Israeli interests and money interests. So my question, though, is without her opponent making a huge issue of that, was that uh, on the minds of voters at all? Or is that just on the minds of, you know, Fox News watchers who don't like Omar, but it wasn't really a driving force in the campaign? I, I think I think you're right. It's kind of a pundit thing, because obviously, again, we, we all we have to do is look at the results, right? Look, look at look at how how well she did. I, I really do think that it's important to remember that her policies, where she stands on issues, this, the stuff she's supporting, absolutely aligns with this congressional district. And that is important to people who want to talk about a Green New Deal or student loans or, or any of these other issues. And frankly, in the moment that we have are facing the, the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, you know, racial justice, police reform, you know, Ilhan Omar, as a, as a congressperson, is on the right side of those policies for this district. It, it, it's a quick thing to note here, but we were a Super Tuesday state. And right up until Super Tuesday, it looked like it was either going to be Senator Klobuchar, our home state presidential candidate, or Bernie Sanders, who were going to win the primary. Well, if you recall, Amy Klobuchar dropped out the day before Super Tuesday and endorsed Biden. Biden ends up winning the state pretty easily. He won every single congressional district except this congressional district, the one that includes Minneapolis and Bernie Sanders won that. And Ilhan Omar endorsed Bernie Sanders and vice versa. So yes, there are these things that the pundits talk about. And some of them are absolutely legitimate things that we should talk about. Like, you know, it is not an unfair claim to say that the husband's firm getting campaign money looks looks bad. Like that is not an illegitimate claim. But then when you get down to the policies, she absolutely, absolutely aligns with this district. 
So you've now probably known her for a while, right? She was involved in city politics. She was elected to a term in the state house. What was her reputation, you know, five years before anyone nationally knew about her? Well, I remember back in uh, 16 when she was running for state representative and she when she won, became the first Somali-American to be elected to um, a state representative, a a legislative seat here in Minnesota, she always had this thing where she was getting a lot of attention. Now, the thing electorally to remember is that in the the two previous times that she's had a DFL, where the DFL party, not the Democratic Party up here in in, uh, in Minnesota, the two times she's had a DFL primary was in 16 when she ran for rep, state rep, and then in 18 when she ran for Congress. And in both of those cases, there were multiple candidates on the ballot, all Democrats on the primary. And in neither of those elections did she surpass 50%. She got 42% the first time and then 48% when she ran for Congress. And so I think when you're talking about the challenge that she faced here in this primary, some of it was rooted in the fact that she had yet to get 50% in a Democratic primary. Now, with this most recent election, she has done that. She, she way surpassed that, and she has now crossed that threshold as well. So let's use Ilan Omar and get into your project of telling the story of Minneapolis. We could start with the Somali community. We could start with what you just referenced, the DFL, the Democrat Farmer Labor Party. That's significant. How does she start to tell the story of Minneapolis? It's an important part of the story because Minneapolis, like many cities in the Midwest and Upper Midwest, in their more recent history, have been stories of population decline. In 1950, 5-0, Minneapolis hit its highest ever population. It was 521,000. So we were over the half million mark. And it's an interesting side note because at that moment in 1950, it was 98.4% white. Then in the 80s and 90s, you had the population decline actually reverse. You had an influx of immigrants, a lot of Latinx immigrants. You also then had a big refugee increase in population. You had Hmong and other Southeast Asian refugees coming from the aftermath of the Vietnam War, the Hmong people in Laos who actually helped the U.S. Army, but nobody in the U.S. knew about it because it was a secret war. And then in the 90s with the Civil War in Somalia, you had Somali and other East African immigrants locating in record numbers to especially Minneapolis. And so the immigrant story that we can tell, which includes Ilhan Omar, is one of saving the city. After decades of losing population, it was immigrants and refugees who turned that around and who made us back into a city that was growing again. So if Minneapolis was relatively welcoming of the Hmong and the Somalis, though, of course, these things are never without friction, what about its African-American population? Was there, there's many instances of the book, in your book, which, well, convinced me Minneapolis is like a lot of the rest of America, but we've been seeing that fault line exposed with the George Floyd killing. So what can you tell me about that? There was no state more behind the cause of abolition when it became a state than Minnesota. No state except one had a higher percentage of votes for Abe Lincoln in 1860. We were this abolitionist place that was on the right side of history in terms of some of those civil rights laws that came about in the late 1800s 
and early 1900s. But then, as you know, guess what? In day-to-day practice and living, it wasn't the same story. So on paper, we were we had a lot going for us. If you wanna if you wanna say it that way, in terms of being on the right side of history in welcoming uh, black people, especially. But then you have starting around 1910, the fact that you had racial covenants written into the property deeds of homes. So these racial covenants prevented black people from living in some parts of the city, frankly, the the most well-off parts of the city, because you couldn't sell to them. And, And what you also had a lot of in Minneapolis is if if a black family was somehow able to buy a house in a part of Minneapolis where the white neighbors didn't want them, a very common tool was for the local neighborhood association to then buy out the black family. So it's a lot of saying things or putting things on paper that sound like they're right, and they are. There were there were good anti-discrimination laws here about public accommodations and the like. But then in the day-to-day practice, it turns out different. And so that's why you have neighborhoods that are heavily black, heavily policed. And as we saw with the George Floyd killing, you know, a potential and then actual flashpoint for excessive police brutality. Yes. And you also then have to add to the calculation that the police in this city have their own history. We have moments throughout our history when the police did not act in what especially the black and brown communities would consider was their best interests. And it goes all the way back to 1900 when we had a super corrupt mayor, Doc Ames, who on the day he was inaugurated, the day he was sworn in, his first action wasn't to sign, you know, some executive order putting us back in the Paris Climate Accord or something. It was to fire half the police force. He fired half the police force on the very day he took office so that he could install his own cronies and supporters who then allowed illegal gambling to come in and told the illegal gambling where to go as long as they got a cut. So the corruption started at that point and you had a police force that was not working in the city's best interest. They were literally working for the mayor and sending the kickbacks up to City Hall. 1934, you have a huge teamster strike. The labor history of this country runs absolutely through Minneapolis, and the chapter about the 34 teamster strike is a very important chapter. We were a virulently anti-union town, thanks to the white elite business owners who didn't want unions in Minneapolis. And when two strikers were shot and killed in 1934 during this strike, and the reaction was so frankly, on the side of the workers and ultimately broke this anti-union sentiment, the results of the investigation found that the police were not the middlemen. They were not the people in the middle separating the strikers from the business owners. They were on the side of the businesses breaking, trying to break the strikes. They were not a neutral party. And so those are examples, in addition to what you just said, where the police also inform the moment to, to where we are today. So this book, your urban biography, went to bed when? Like a year ago, eight <laughs> no. months ago? It, it went to the printer to actually be printed about three or four weeks before George Floyd was murdered. Before. I actually, in the editing process, was able to get one line in at the end about COVID, about how there's disparities between who's getting affected and who's, who's getting infected and who's dying, you know, people of color versus white people. But this thing went to bed about three weeks before George was killed. 
knowing what you know, having written the biography, were you shocked that this happened in your city? Sadly, no, because it's not the first time. Like, George Floyd is not the first example. And if you speak to people in the Black community, they would tell you that it's not even something that's new to the last decade. The harassment has been there for generations. At the 10,000-foot level, it sadly was not a super shock. So we had Betsy Hodges on the show, and she has gotten a lot of attention for pointing the finger at white liberals. They're the source of blame for the lack of real reform. To what extent is that kind of an attention-getting provocation? And to what extent is she really putting a finger on the exact cause of why this has all been allowed to happen in your city? Her point was that we might see changes to policing and to policies as a result of George Floyd's murder, but the reason we're seeing them is because the goalpost of what is acceptable, of what is comfortable for white people, has moved. Now we're at a point where they've seen all of these examples of black and brown people getting killed by police, and they've, they've moved the, the goalpost or the whatever you want to call it to a place where now banning chokeholds is something. It's a no-brainer. It's the thing you have to do. So I take the point. I think there's, there's a very valid point in there. And frankly, some of that's playing out right now because the city council, immediately after George Floyd's murder, said we're going to totally reshape the police department. And that got into a whole defund the police debate. Um, and then the city council passed 12 to nothing um, a proposed amendment to go on the ballots this fall, this November in Minneapolis, to change the structure of government to get rid of the police department and instead create a Department of Community Safety and Violence Prevention. <laughs> what happened in the last few weeks is that the city council can't put that on the ballot by itself. It then has to send the proposal to what's called the Charter Commission, and they make the final decision on whether it goes on the ballot. And long story short is they delayed it. They didn't put it on the ballot. Was this delayed in getting on the ballot because it wasn't fully hatched? You know, it hadn't had time to, to cook enough and wasn't actually a good proposal? Or is it because it's past the, the line of white comfort, as the mayor had mentioned in her op-ed? I think that's a very valid question to be asking. Tom Weber is a former host for Minnesota Public Radio. He's an author and journalist, and his latest book is Minneapolis, an Urban Biography. Thanks a lot, Tom. You are welcome. Great to talk to you. And now the spiel. Nate Silvers, 538, has come out with its forecasting model predicting the odds of Joe Biden winning the presidential election. It was, when they announced it yesterday, it was 71% the exact odds 538 gave Hillary Clinton on election day. And they were wrong. Or maybe they were right. It's kind of impossible to know. And that tells you a lot about the nature of the enterprise. Now, I told Michelle, I said, hey, Michelle, they gave Biden a 71% chance to win. And she said, I hope they're right. And I said, oh, I hope they're not. So she took 71% chance to mean he'll probably win, which is true. He will probably win, or that's what 71% Chance means he's likely to win, but I took 71% to mean likely, but far, far from certain. For instance, to draw an analogy from the recent political past, I don't know if you knew this, but Hillary Clinton had a 71% chance of winning. Or did she? 
I used to defer to the 538 model. I didn't exactly believe it or say it was the truth, but I deferred, that's the word I would think, to the normal track record of Nate Silver, the rigor in putting together the model. They have a good podcast where they explain things. It all made sense to me. I just thought that the 538 model was such a superior tool to all the other forms of prognostication that I encountered. I still think it is, by the way, but I have lit upon a new strategy of navigating the question of who will win, and which is I generally refuse to engage in it. I don't know, not in the future is unknowable kind of way, but in the way that I just have more humility about wanting an answer, about seeking an answer, about expressing any certainty, about making assurances to others about the quote unquote answer. The 2016 election convinced me to be more humble. Yes, Donald Trump humiliated me. With most predictions, we ask, well, were they accurate? With political predictions that are in the middle 50%, like anywhere between 25 and 75%, I actually wonder what accuracy means. So let me give you an example of how to conceptualize 71%. If the visiting team had a two-run lead in the third inning of a ball game, like when the third inning starts, uh, statistics, the entire history of baseball basically, shows they have about a 71% chance of winning. You've watched a lot of baseball games where a team has been up two runs in the third and that team lost, right? Now, we should also say, however, that a two-run lead in the ninth inning is about a 94% chance of that team winning, meaning so much of the uncertainty is not that we don't know if the polls are accurate, we don't know if people are being honest, but more, it's just so far from election day that anything can change, just like it's so far from the ninth inning that there's a lot of baseball to be played. 538 is a tool. It can give people who understand odds a better sense of the odds. But there are so many people who don't understand odds or just have a basic understanding of the odds that it's quite useless as a tool, not 538's fault, but useless to the general public who tries to think what a 71% chance means and concludes, oh, that'll happen. So did 538 get it right last year? They will say yes. And what they'll mean is compared to every other forecaster out there, they offered lower odds on Hillary Clinton winning. And since Hillary Clinton didn't win, that's perhaps an indication that they were more right than their rivals. It was, they were definitely more right than Princeton's Sam Wong, who said she had a 99% chance. Here is Wong in a media appearance on Sam Sanders' show the day before the 2016 election. And he was talking about the general consensus among the other pollsters that Nate Silver was the one who was wrong. Which is actually what I do at the Princeton Election Consortium, because I'm not a news organ. I don't run a news organization. I'm just trying to get an answer that I think is accurate. Anyway, so the bottom line here is that so the bottom line here is that the Huffington Post uh, article by Ryan Grimm says that Nate Silver is biased in favor of Trump. Huffington Post, for the record, said Clinton had a 98% chance of winning, and Ryan Grimm, who was referenced as the author of that article, left the Huffington Post for The Intercept, where he does some valuable work, but also was the chief disseminator of Tara Reid's accusation against Joe Biden. But here's the thing about understanding what a 538 model means. I don't even want to use understanding. Here's how to conceive of it, how to conceptualize if a model is right or wrong. The easy heuristic is the candidate they say is likely to win. Did that candidate win? Yeah, then they got it right. 
that's really, really stupid. Things that are slightly likely are very, very close to unlikely. Or put another way, I have no idea in real life what anything between a 40% and 60% chance means. I don't know why that's better than just saying, we don't know, and really anything can happen. Okay? Now, when it gets to the other extremes, like Huffington Post and Sam at Princeton, who said 98, 99%, okay, then we can have a pretty good sense, even if we can't put, or some of us can, but even if there are no exact numbers put to it, we have a pretty good sense they were wrong. True, they could have been right, it's just that the 1% or 2% thing happened, but it seems unlikely that someone saying a 99% chance of a thing happening got it right if that thing doesn't happen. In fact, there's a 99% chance that the person got it wrong. But let's take the New York Times needle, right? That's the thing that said Clinton had an 85% chance. So they seem more wrong than Nate does with his 2016 prediction. But they're not. They're not in any way that can be proved or shown with math. I mean, you could look at the underlying assumptions and you could look at the state-by-state data and see how accurate they were. But is it true that Nate got it wrong? I don't know. Is it true that Nate got it right? It's just that the 29% chance thing of happening happened. If that's true, why couldn't it also be that the 15% chance of thing happening happened? The difference between a 29% occurrence and a 15% occurrence, as you know, is 14%. But in the terms that we're thinking of, being able, able to intellectually conceptualize it, not much of a difference. Sometimes what the model makers will do is describe the purpose of their models this way. They'll say, what it means is if we ran the election a million times, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden will win 700 10,000 of those times and Trump would win 290,000 times. The problem is we have to live in the reality, the reality where Trump won. But the real reason is you can make a statement like that when you, you're talking about baseball games because there haven't been a million of them played, but there have been over 200,000 major league baseball games played. So you have a pretty good sample size. When you're talking about a presidential election, it's against a pool of the 21 elections since Gallup filed its first poll. So there is no if the election were run a million times way of thinking about it, not as one would think about a football game or a baseball game. The best analogy is to say a futures contract, a commodities, soy futures, and people who bet on or invest in commodity futures often run their own models. And they will tell you the percent chance that the price of soy is at 15 in four months. And if the contract for soy in four months is very different, their model will tell them to place a bet one way or another. So the 538 model essentially is telling you whatever the betting markets say, if it's very different from my model, you might want to place a bet on it. I mean, it is kind of similar to a commodities future contract or all commodities contract because Like a commodities contract, it takes into account how far we are from the contract being executed or from election day. And like a commodities contract, you can't really know if they're right or wrong. What you can know is if they're offering value or not value in relation to where a current price is. But unlike the 538 model, a commodities contract does have a lot, a lot, a lot of past contracts to draw upon to see where prices may go. And that is not the case in presidential elections. And also, here's a big difference. Soy doesn't get tossed off Facebook for meritless medical claims. 
Soy doesn't say its opponent, corn, wants to hurt God. And when the soy contract closes, it's closed. It doesn't get the option of not accepting the results of the market. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly, who produces The Gist, can turn the world on with a smile. Daniel Schrader, Gist producer, can take a nothing day and suddenly make it all seem worthwhile. They're both going to make it after all, after they navigate the personalities of the Slate newsroom, including anchor Ted Baxter, news writer Murray Slaughter, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Alicia Montgomery, and of course, Mr. Grant. The gist, referencing iconic 70s sitcoms as if everyone in the audience knows exactly where they were when Chuckles the Clown died. Oom-peru-de-peru-du-peru, and thanks for listening.